Well, this morning, we've got a special treat. We have a friend of Brookside here with us. His name's Paul Sabino. Paul's been here before. I actually met Paul in college as a new Christian. And um, one of the things that's been true of Paul's life and how it's impacted mine is he's really inspired my faith. Um, he's done it again yet this morning. He did it last night. He'll probably do it today at lunch. But when I'm around Paul, my faith gets inspired. And watching his life and his leadership has been so helpful to me. Uh, he's mentored me in a lot of ways. And so to be able to share him uh, with our church yet again this morning, it's just a real, real privilege. You know, one of our values as a church is what we call intentional relationships. And what we mean by intentional relationships is that we don't believe that God puts anyone in your life on accident, that God actually puts people in your life and in my life, like the guy I met at the gym just this last week, for a purpose. And that purpose oftentimes is that, God, you've given me your grace, and that's impacted my life in some incredible ways. And so now, Lord, how do I share that with the people that are in my life? And so Paul's going to talk about that this morning, and he's going to lead us into a question that we're going to ask not only this morning, not only next week and next month, but for really the years to come. You're going to hear this question a lot around here. That question is this, who's your one? And we're going to begin to ask that question a lot as a church because we want to have this on our minds. Lord, who is it in my life that you've put me in their life so that I could share the goodness that you've, put, you've done and the things that you've done in my heart through Jesus Christ. And so, so excited uh, for, for this morning. So why don't we pray together, and then uh, Paul will lead us. All right, let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you for this morning. And Lord, what an honor, what a privilege it is to come into this place and to worship you, Lord, to make your name great, to praise you, to give you adoration. And Lord, we just want to say thank you for that opportunity. Lord, thank you that you've revealed yourself to us. And this morning, Lord, we're pr our prayer to you, our simple request is, Lord, would you speak deeply into our hearts, Lord, so that we might leave this place and we might even grow up in our faith a little bit today, that you might leave, leave us, allow us to leave here changed today. And so, Lord, we pray for Paul. We pray that his words would be your words and that your Holy Spirit would do a great work in and through him. Father, we also pray for his church in Florida this morning, this church plant that is new and that you're going to work mightily through as Brookside Church, we pray a blessing for a church that's hundreds and hundreds of miles away, and we say, God, would you do immeasurably more in that church? And so, Father, thank you for this morning. We pray you lead us now. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, let's welcome Paul to, to Brookside. All right, here we go. Good morning, Brookside. It's a lot of fun to be with you, and I feel like I've been with you for over 15 years, from junior high retreats, jumping in with Jeff, to high school retreats, to men's conferences, and getting a chance to speak some on the weekends. And um, now God has us extending the SALT Network, which is a, a work that is primarily in church planting in the Midwest, all the way down to Florida, at the University of Florida in, in Gainesville. And uh, I used to think Florida was just for Disney World and old people. I'm, honestly, you know, and little did I know there are 1.1 million university students in Florida, some of the largest campuses anywhere in the U.S., and we feel like God has very clearly led us to the University of Florida in Gainesville. Here's a picture of, of just the campus. At this school alone, there are 53,000 students, and it's a flagship school uh, for the state. Our desire isn't just to plant a church. We desire to plant a church that plants churches all across the state, 
as has been happening here in the Midwest. Um, so the gospel is known among those over a million university students. I started, we got there late December, and this spring we've been working. This next picture is of um, some students. Um, actually, right there next to me is my daughter, Claire. She's my youngest. She actually got admitted to the University of Florida, so she'll be starting this fall. But that's a group of students doing a gospel 101, kind of understanding the gospel and sharing the gospel. Just this last spring, it was fun to do that in the student union there on our last day. Uh, this next picture is just a shot of one of our preview services. We've only had a couple of these this summer. We're in a middle school right there renting that space. And then we will have our launch service on August uh, 25th. So that's coming up here just in, in a couple weeks now. And then uh, this, this last picture shows a couple people who moved. They're in the dead middle. That's Van and Aaron Zook. Now that's a picture of them with all their family. And I purposely wanted this picture to ask the question, why in the world? <laughs> why would they go? with us. They love their kids. They dearly love their grandkids and left them, I'm sure, with blinding tears. Why? They've lived in the Cedar Valley for so long. They are some of the best people that have ever come out of Candeo Church. And in fact, in the Cedar Valley, he has job contacts everywhere. He can build anything, and he has none in Florida, just starting to make some. Why? In fact, I was driving through Gainesville. They moved down. There are two of the 33 people who have moved, like one-way tickets, relocated life for this church plant. And I said, oh, you'll like that restaurant. That's another good one. And he goes, Paul, he goes, we're making sandwiches because they don't have money. They have left the security and the strength of a well-established practice to just start over in their 50s. Why? I'm telling you, there is something about what Jesus said that we will hear of this morning that has grabbed their hearts, has grabbed the hearts of 30 other people, and we believe God is going to bless because he is in. And you have to see this. I believe God has uniquely set this time up that we would even pause from the Psalm series to take a look at this text and hear Jesus speaking to you. I believe God wants to speak to you this morning. Let me open up the passage in Matthew 28. This is a passage that Jesus spoke. He had lived his life perfectly, had died his death, rose victoriously, and now in the presence of just 11 disciples, he gives these closing words that if you follow Jesus today, if you say, that's me, these are your marching orders also. Listen to what Jesus says. Matthew 28, verse 16 the Bible records the 11 disciples traveled to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had directed them. When they saw him, they worshiped, but some doubted. Jesus came near and said to them, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything I have commanded you. And remember, I am with you always to the end of the age." If you like taking notes, if you're into that, I'll give you the big idea. I think you will see this very plain all throughout the text. Here it is. Making disciples is our final command, and God's presence is our greatest comfort. That's it. Making disciples is our final command, and God's presence is your greatest comfort. Start with me back in verse 16. Let's unpack this passage. It is beautiful. The Bible says the 11 disciples traveled to Galilee. First off, let me say disciple. What it is not is a fan. 
A disciple's not a fan. It's not an attender. It's not someone who kind of paid lip service to him, someone marginally impressed with Jesus. A disciple in that context is someone who is being mentored by someone else. So if you'd say, I'm a disciple of Jesus, that is to say that Jesus is your boss, your Lord, your King. You are learning from Him. You are actively following Him. You're doing what He says for you to do. But now it says the 11 disciples. That, if you're a Bible student or if you've been in the Bible a little bit, that should immediately go, wait a minute, 11. I've never heard of 11. There's always been 12. This is the first time you hear of 11. The 12th one, remember Judas. He looked like he was a part of it. He never was. There are people who are like him probably in this room today. You talk like it. You act like it. You look like it. You're all around it, but you're not in it. You don't have God in you. That was Judas, who showed his true colors when he betrayed Jesus for some money. Judas was crucified, and he, out of remorse, killed himself. There were only 11 here. Not all who seemed to start, finish. That was true then. It is true now. These 11 disciples traveled to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had directed them. And get this, when they saw him, they worshiped, but some doubted. What did it look like when 11 people worship one person who's there? I mean, would it be like Rob saying, you know, to the other 10 disciples, hey guys, gather around. It's a little awkward. Jesus, sit on a stool. I'm going to play some songs, some of our favorites. We're just going to stand here and sing at you. Is that what it looked like when 11 disciples worship Jesus? We tie worship to music. It is one way to worship. Worship is literally ascribing worth to something. It's what happens with our words and our actions when our heart is overwhelmed with joy. This word has been used elsewhere. You remember when the, um, the, the, the magi, right, the wise men, they came to Jesus when he was just a small child. The Bible says they fell to their knees and they worshiped. No music. And they're worshiping. In fact, right before this, in the same chapter, there were a couple women who went to the tomb, found the tomb empty. The angel didn't inspire them to worship that they saw. No, they ran into Jesus and they fell at his feet and worshiped. No music. And now here are the disciples worshiping. No music. Worship is what happens when your heart beholds greatness and you go, that's awesome. Worship is what happens when someone punches it in the end zone and we go, yes, we declare awesomeness. Worship is what happens when we see something. It's so funny. It's so awesome. We click tweet, snap, post, anything you know how to do with your phone, you know, take the picture, picture, picture. We want to capture greatness, enjoy it, and we have to proclaim it. Proclaiming what you worship, that's just called evangelism. People do it all the time. Only some of them are talking about Jesus, though. Some, you know what they're about, and it has nothing to do with the Lord. Worship is what flows. And get this, they had heard about Jesus. They have now seen his life. They have seen his power. They saw a man die and rise from the dead. Here he is in his glorified state, and they can do no other than worship him. And now, then, on that mountain, 11 disciples worship Jesus. Revelation 7, at the end of time that is not yet here, People from every tribe, language, tongue, they will worship Jesus. A countless throng of people, Jesus will get the worship he deserves. But between that mountainside where there are 11 and the scene that is yet coming where there will be untold millions, we stand in the gap. We live in the gap between 11 people worshiping Jesus and him receiving the worship of all nations. And mark my words, 
Jesus right now is gathering worshipers. This text calls it making disciples. And he is so great and glorious, he deserves the worship of all nations, and they will not have joy in their souls until they worship this Jesus. And you and I, our job in this gap is to draw worshipers to this great God. And here we are on the front end of this text. The Bible then goes on to say this. Jesus comes near to them. They worship some doubt. And in verse 18, it says, Jesus says to them, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. And then comes his command. Let me just stop first with the phrase. Jesus' first words to him wasn't do this. It was this. It was a setup. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Everything. Now, in heaven. Guys, the angelic realm, it, they all bow to Jesus. And if your picture of angels is like that little thing above your grandma's toilet, like some Cupid-looking guy shooting arrows, some cute, fluffy little wing thing, then you are all messed up. That is not the picture we get in the Bible of angels. They are divine warriors. They execute his judgment. They will bring terror on this planet they will bring things that make tsunamis look like little puddles. They will bring devastation and destruction. They will end so much human life. They are divine warriors. There are millions of them probably, untold numbers, and they do his bidding. They are all powerful right next to the authority of God. Jesus says, all of them obey me, every one of them. I have all authority in heaven. And then he says, all authority on earth. Think about that. Those who think they're in control of something. Jesus is in control. Every bit of authority has been measured out from the little child who babysits someone. The parent says, I give you authority. If they do good and put their toys away, you can give them a treat. If not, don't. And that little babysitter goes, got it. You know, they have authority, you know. And all the way up the chain, we, moms and dads, you have authority in your home over your children. It is right that you lead. It is right that they obey. Husbands, God has given you a level of leadership and authority to be a blessing and a provider and a kind leader in the life of your wife and children. It is right that they follow your leadership. The church has been given authority. Our country has been given authority. But Jesus steps in and he says all of it from divine warriors in heaven to every human being that has or ever will live, all authority in heaven on earth has been given to me. And what I'm about to say is not a mere suggestion. It is not a mere reflection. It is your great commission. With all authority in heaven and all authority on earth, Jesus says, Go therefore, and here's the command, make disciples of all nations. That's it. If you follow Jesus, here's your reason to be here this morning. Make disciples of all nations. If you have a reason to get up tomorrow morning, it's one thing. Make disciples. It is your one job. You have one task. And Jesus, with all authority, says, this is it. You're a disciple of mine? That's awesome. You make disciples. The command isn't go. The command is make disciples. If you're into language, the imperative command is make disciples, and there are three participles that describe it. Going, baptizing, and teaching. But the command is make disciples. Now, here's the deal. I'm not that great at evangelism. 
And honestly, a lot of my last five years, I watched a church grow so fast in Northeast Iowa that for quite a while, I, yeah, I didn't even need to. Like hardly any of us needed to because so many people were coming from other churches. I just found myself really busy a lot with Christian things. You get like that too? And instead of making disciples, I was just taking disciples. Do you know that 99% of churches that are growing in the United States are doing it by transfer growth, not conversion growth? Like 99 out of 100 churches that are growing numerically, they're only doing it because other churches are getting smaller and they're, those are the growing ones. They're not making disciples, they're taking disciples. They're just people that are growing and coming to those churches. Only 1% of churches in our country are growing by conversion growth. Brookside, how do you live in the 1%? How do we get there? How do we live in that place? Jesus' commands isn't bring Christians in from other churches. He says, you go and make disciples. Now look, here's, and this will be up on a slide. We do make disciples by going, for sure, by going. Going is part of that. Does it mean that every one of you should get up and move and go somewhere else? Not necessarily. Does it mean that you should go to Florida? Not necessarily. You, you might. Does it mean that you go be a part of the next church that this church is planting, the, the, the campus that's going to come in November? Maybe, but, but not necessarily. Some will go. Here's the gist of it. Move away from the place that you are in a new direction. Get out of your bubble. Get out of your tight Christian circle. Why would Jesus say this to these men? Here's why. Jesus didn't die for 11 people to go to heaven. And then he's done. And he's not done just because you're in the room. The gospel has come to you. It's always on its way to someone else. He's not okay with just 11 people in heaven. They needed to go because the whole world, no one's tweeting that, no one's snapping it, no one's sharing it. Something happened. A man who claimed to be God lived perfectly, died, rose from the dead, showing victory over death, and you can escape hell and judgment and come into heaven if you put your faith in him. And 11 people know that. Go! Don't stand there. Go! Get going! Get on with it. You've got the best message in the world. No one knows. No one knows. Only 11 do. Guess we got to get going. When's the last time you said the word Jesus outside of this, these walls? Who are you sharing Jesus with right now? Who are you bringing into your home for dinner? Do they all have the same skin color as you? Who could you meet with this week and talk to Jesus, talk about Jesus with? We're too busy meeting with other Christians. I know, I get the schedules are busy. You need to cut out Christians at some level to make room for the lost. Look, we have to go. When are we going to get going? Look, going can mean getting up and just going across the street. Check this out. Um, I, I'm scared talking to people about Jesus. I'm not even that good at that. Um, so here's what we did. We, uh, instead of giving people Jesus, we gave people scones. Here's what I mean. Like, my wife made scones. Check this picture out. This is going to make you want to not listen to me at all and just eat these things. Okay, coming, coming, scones, ready, set. There, there. Lemon blueberry. Oh, man, those are amazing. I picked the blueberries myself. I'm not joking. Lemon blueberry. 
mango lime, double chocolate. My wife, she, she was at this time, when I'm trying to reach the neighbors, like in the midst of like five months of depression, really hard season of life, the worst depression she's ever gone through, but she could make scones. So she made scones, and then I went on out, I even brought my daughter one time, and we just went around to our neighbors. Hey, I don't know most of the neighbors. So I went around knocking on doors. Hey, I'm Paul. And then you just throw food at them, and they're like, okay, you're legit. Like, well, at least you have scones. You know, so I'm handing people food. Guys, Linda was so scared when I opened the door. Had Claire, though, so that disarmed it. But Linda, three and a half years ago, her husband dies. Lives right across the street. She's depressed herself, just in mourning. And though she was visibly shaken multiple times, thank you for coming. Linda needs Jesus. Now I know her. I'm going to invite her to our services. Then I went to Bob and Kathy, next door neighbors. Their bumper sticker, in dogs we trust. You know, seriously, they worship dogs, not God. They need to know Jesus. <laughs> they worship and serve the created, not the creator who's forever blessed. I mean, they're like Romans 1, right there. They live next to me. Like, she, I think, is going to come to our launch service. Gave them scones. I went down the road. I met Bob and Kathy. Different one. Man, Bob is against, like, all things Christianity. I, I met Dan, I met, I, I met um, Carl and his wife, Brenda. They're optometrists. They help people see, and I think they are maybe possibly blind to the gospel. I, I met um, Doc and Susan. They call him Doc because he was a professor for a lot of years. Get this. This guy, I'm sitting at his wife's, like, taking me to task on, like, her church things. I mean, it was a very interesting hour. But anyways, Doc, this big guy, Gregarious, he goes, how are you going to do it? Who's going to come to your church? How are you going to get people there? And I looked at Doc and I said, one scone at a time. <laughs> no. I'll at least invite them. Guys, someone else made cookies right now because we don't have church service. Everyone in our connection group is walking around their neighborhoods just meeting people. How can we be praying for you? Going can mean going across the street. You could do that. Do your neighbors know you? So you don't know how to make scones. Make cookies. And if you don't, they sell them in packages. They're called Oreos. Like, <laughs> seriously, I'm not joking. Could you do that this week? Meet your neighbors? Could you ask people, hey, how can I pray for you? You could do that. They could come here and know Jesus because of you getting out of your comfort zone. You could go across the street. You could go across the city. We went across the city to Tower Oaks Apartments. This is a low-income place. It's the hood. It's kind of a, a, a hard spot. But I was inspired by another guy in Gainesville who picked the hardest apartment complex. Get this, after several months of laboring there, knocking on doors, hey, this is my name. How can I pray for you? He has won, I'm not joking, 60 people to Christ in that apartment complex. He has now gone inside every door. The drug dealers who said, do not come here, are now gone, and the cop pulls up next to him and says, we used to be called in here all the time, and now we're not getting calls. What's going on? Fifty of those people are now coming to church, being bussed over like in these vans, and people, multiple ones who've given their lives to Christ, are now turning around and winning their neighbors to Christ. So inspired by that, we're like, let's try it. Let's go to some place, knock on some doors. The first door we knocked on, Monica opens the door. This was just as significant for my wife's story as it was Monica's. Because Jenny, this is not her, and she's been struggling with depression. She prayed that morning, God, help me talk to someone who understands depression. Monica opens the door. Monica is there, eager to talk to us, and begins to say, 
I moved into this apartment complex because I wanted to be at a place my mom could come. She's about to die, and I just wanted a place where she could be at home before she dies. Monica moved in, but two days before she moved in, her mom died. So there she is in Tower Oaks Apartments. Monica went on to say, the man who was going to marry me yesterday ended our relationship. And she goes, and that's why I was at the hospital last night. I actually just got released two hours ago because I tried to kill myself. And my wife, as only one woman to another woman's heart can speak, her eyes fill with tears. One woman who understands sadness and depression begins to speak to the heart of another and begins to talk about the love of God. And I said, Monica, God set this up. You were the first person to open the door. God is in this. He cares for you and wants to be your refuge and your helper and your strength. And we prayed with Monica. I'm telling you, multiple families now are calling our church, their church, they're starting to come. It's because we went across the city. You could do that. You could do that. We don't even know what we're doing, and God's blessing that. Or you could go across the country. I mean, it's knocking on doors. It's going up to apartments. It's dan- it's, check out the huntings. This picture is really a lot of fun. You have a couple that have come with us. I told you about uh, a, a number of them. But let me just show you Dan and Tess and his little three-year-old girl, Winnie. They jump in a U-Haul, right? Got a picture of them. Uh, they jump in this uh, U-Haul, pack up all their stuff. Dan had a better job here. <laughs> They had a great church. Winnie, well, she looks just happy to be alive, you know, like in her car seat. That's the front of the U-Haul, them rolling into town. And they've left a lot. I said, Dan, why'd you do it? And Dan said, God met us in our college years. Like he says, God changed my world. And if I can go be a part of a church that is being planted to reach other university students, I want to be a part of that. God's worth it. Guys, going is part of it. If it's not across country, it's across the street. You can do that. Tomorrow you will work with people I don't know. There's lost people God's put around you. Every time he puts a lost person around you, it's a divine opportunity. Call it what it is, and let's open our mouths about Jesus. Wherever we go, we have to. We are under orders. Look, it's about going, but get this. It's also about baptizing. As soon as someone comes to know Jesus... We need to recognize that we make disciples by baptizing. Jesus said, baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And I'm not going to go into that um, a lot because, honestly, I bet this church teaches on that. If you know Jesus Christ, I'll say it this way. If you know Jesus and you've not been baptized, you need to obey Jesus and be baptized. It's simply that. That's the greatest reason to, to be baptized is out of obedience to Jesus. If you have not since putting your faith in Christ been baptized, you, you are making optional and actually disobeying the first command he ever gave. He wants you to go public with it through baptism. So, so get on that. Don't make optional his first command. It's a bad practice for, for moving forward. But look, we make disciples. Jesus said, go and make disciples. He said, of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And then Jesus says, and teaching them to observe everything I've commanded you. Teach people to observe everything Jesus commanded. Look, we make disciples by teaching them to obey, teaching people to obey. Now, let me just stop for a second about this. Jesus is not interested in you just knowing more things about him. He's not. Jesus is 
is interested in you obeying whatever he has said. And, and if you're a parent, like, hey, parents, I've got three kids. They're all just hitting college age. Let me talk to some of the younger parents. Which would you rather have? A child that perfectly understands everything you want them to do or a child that does it? Yeah, thank you for that honesty. Yeah, does it. Like this mom was like, yeah, right away. I know the answer to that one. You're not interested in a child who's like, oh, totally, I get it. You want the child to obey. Francis Chan, I remember years ago, I remember hearing him talk about this, saying, look, can you imagine if I told my son, son, before I get home, clean your room. This is pretty simple. Clean your room. Got it, Dad. Totally understand that. Awesome. You have a good day. Dad leaves, and the son does whatever. Dad comes home. Son meets him at the door. Dad, <laughs> what you said? Wow. <laughs> Boom. Just hit me. In fact, Dad, what? clean your room. I was so impacted by it, I pulled some friends together. We actually did a study on that. We just did a study on what it means to clean your room. Man, we got together about an hour and a half. It was awesome. One of my friends opened it in prayer. But, but Dad, we did a study. Guess, guess what? Did you know that to clean in the Greek language, you know, means this? <laughs> we didn't even know that. It's amazing, isn't it, Dad? You know, that clean was a word that was actually used back then. In fact, Dad, get this. All together, we were so moved by it, we decided we were going to memorize what you said. We committed it to memory. Okay, ready? Watch this, Dad. Okay, ready? Clean your room. You said that, Dad. You said it. I memorized that. We all did. In fact, Dad, we not only studied this word, and we, not, I mean, we talked about it for like an hour, but then we memorized the verse, and then guess, oh, we had a sweet time of prayer. Mm. Dad, we just, we found ourselves going, God, what would it be like? What, what would it be like if we actually cleaned a room? <laughs> Man. Lord, oh, oh, that you, you would make people clean rooms. Oh, that you would move us, empower us even. God, to clean the room. Man, Dad, it was, I'm getting choked up, Dad, just thinking about it. I mean, we were, at some point, at some point in all that, the dad's going to go, did you clean your room? Did you clean the room? No, Dad but I memorized it, I know it, we studied it, we prayed. Did you clean your room? You had one job. I don't care how much you know about cleaning your room. Did you get it done? This is how Christianity is. Jesus says, I'm commanding you. Part of making disciples is teach them to obey everything I've commanded you. It is, listen to me, if you're a Christian who knows a ton about things that God says, but you do very little of it, you are very immature in your faith. But get this, if you're a Christian who's brand new as a Christian, what behind the ears? Like, they just cut the cord. Like, you are brand new at this, and you only know a few things, but whatever you hear from Jesus, like, you do it, you try your best, you're more mature like, it's totally different than you think. It doesn't matter how old and how many commands and how many verses you got. Memorized. I don't care. Do you do what Jesus is telling you to do? I don't care if you can talk to me about the Old Testament tithes. You know what they did as a 10%. In fact, it was even more percent. They gave up this, they gave up this, they gave up this. And then as you move to the New Testament, giving. 
do you give generously or not? What percentage before you take out taxes and insurance of your income do you give? I hope you can leave the 10% Old Testament tithes in the dust. Please tell me that us who live in the top 1% of global wealth are not settling at the smallest number we can find anywhere in the Bible. Just tell me, do you obey what Jesus says? Do you give generously? And no one will pat you on the back for tithing. It's not generous. It's faithful at best. Do you give generously to, well, what do we give to? All the pictures on the fridge? To the local church, Jesus calls it his bride. How can he put more value on it? Do you generously support this place because of the gospel work here? Do you give? Don't tell me what it means in Greek. Show me your checkbook. Do you evangelize? Don't tell me the words related to this. And as you move into the book of Acts, do you talk to people about Jesus? I get it. It's scary. God's command to us is make disciples. Are we in it or not? Jesus commands us not to just teach people his ways, but to call them to obey. But get this, guys. Not only does God call us to make disciples, but we make disciples with Jesus. And this is my greatest confidence in this. God does not bury us with guilt and judgment. I've given you this great command. Let it just smash you into the ground. No, no, no. He gives you this great calling, this great commission. And then he says, and I'm with you in that. Read with me the last verse here. And remember, I am with you always to the end of the age. I said that the the point of this was that God has given us our final command is to make disciples, but then our greatest comfort would be that God is with us. He says, I am with you always to the end of the age. God's presence goes with us. Tomorrow morning, some of you will go to work. God's with you. Take a step forward in faith. Some of you are high school students. I was 17 when someone started talking to me about Jesus. 17. You would have stayed away from me because of what I did with girls and, and what I was doing on the weekends and my foul mouth and all that stuff, but someone stayed in it with me, and I came to know Jesus at 17. My whole world was different, and some of you are about to hit high school. Stop asking who's going to be my friend on day one and start asking who can I share the gospel with. Be like Andrew Hager, that student in Cedar Falls, who when I met a senior of high school, he says at lunchtime, I don't eat my lunch. Seems like a great time to eat your lunch. What are you doing during your lunchtime? At lunchtime, I meet a new student every day, the ones that no one talks to. I hear their story, and then I share the gospel with them, and I share my story. And then the period after lunch, that's when I eat my lunch in that class. Every day. Oh, student, win your schools to Christ. Make disciples, share the gospel. I promise you this, God's in that. This promise that God is with you, God's presence has been the comfort of his people throughout generations. In fact, God's presence has always been the courage that God's people needed to take risk. It was true of Moses. Moses says, we will not even get up from here and move on unless you go with us. It was true of Joshua. God commanded him to be strong and courageous because I am with you. It was true of the psalmist. Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? Why? Because you're with me, 
And it is true of these 11 disciples that could have just been teenagers on that mountain being told, win the world for the gospel. I'm with you. I am with you. This isn't a cute slogan to put on a coffee mug. This isn't something to just knit and hand us someone as a potholder. This is weighty because God is saying, this is what I'm doing. Okay? I don't know what you think God's up to. He is all about making disciples. It's where he is. It's his narrative. And guess what? When you join him in that, God's with you in that. Now, you might be over here dinking around doing your own Christian thing. God's like, this is where I'm moving. You want the blessing of God on your life? Get on his blessed path. It's already blessed. It's all about making disciples. God is with you is your comfort and your courage. As a kid, I grew up flying gliders, sailplanes. They get pulled up into the sky behind other planes. I wish I had a picture to show you. I, I should have brought one. Um, and lastly, in, in high school, I would fly over the mountains um, around Lake Tahoe, the Sierras. That's where my father had a business. And I remember at one time, um, at, at the time, I was a licensed pilot, but the, uh, the kind of flying that we were going to do that day was actually quite terrifying. We were trying to get into mountain wave. It's a unique condition that sets up uh, with the jet stream over the high Sierras. And underneath it, there are clouds called rotor. They are clouds that just spin over and over. Think of a stream with tumbling water. It's doing that in the sky, and it's the most violent kind of weather a pilot can fly to. But you have to punch through that to get into these high-altitude flights that go up to 30,000 feet. So I was trying to get through that rotor. My dad was in the back seat. We were encountering some of the greatest rotor I've ever experienced. I have a five-point harness, and I'm getting jerked around more violent than any roller coaster I've been on. I've been on a lot of them, just jerked around. You're connected to another plane. A high-power, think crop duster, huge engines in these things that pull you into the sky, and it was having a very difficult time climbing. In fact, I have never been lower altitude and that far away from the airport than on this flight, and I had never been flying so close to the mountains in such violent weather. And here he is trying to pull us up to the sky. 200 feet of rope separate you, and whatever happens to this plane, it'll hit you really soon. So if all of a sudden his wings rock like that, just wait for it. It doesn't matter what you do, your wings are going to rock. If he drops down or jumps up, it's going to hit you. And so you're just holding on for your life, getting jerked around. But my dad's with me. And that had to be true because of what was about to happen. I've never seen it since. I'm on tow. I'm right up against the mountains. I'm the pilot in command. I have control of the plane. And the tow plane jumps up, flips upside down. I see that it's all of its wheels up and gets sucked down towards the mountain. And I freeze. We have dual controls. I'm the pilot in command, but I froze. And my dad said these words from the back seat. He grabs the controls. He says, I have command. Pulls the rope, tries to pull us out of this. The weather still grabs us, flips us over, sucks us down close to the mountains. But my dad's in the back seat. He's an accomplished pilot. He's been doing this for years. And I am floored as he pulls us out of a dive and then begins to work so hard to get lift just right near these mountains, just high enough, scratches out enough lift to get us home. Guys, I was terrified. I didn't know what to do. I didn't know what the next step was. I was supposed to be the pilot command, and I wasn't even ready to pull a thing, but my dad was in the back seat. He had control. He was with me, and I could do it because he was with me. And I'm telling you, God is calling you, make disciples, but his greatest comfort to you is his presence.
We have to get going. This is a unique opportunity. I'm gone. I'm back to Florida. This is a unique Sunday you came on. God is speaking to you. Who's it going to be? Moms and dads? Children, who do you know who doesn't know Jesus? Who will you talk to tomorrow? Who is at that workplace? Are you going to do scones or cookies? They won't care. You've got to knock on their doors. We've got to get out there with all authority. We've been called to it. Some men are born great. Others achieve greatness, and some have greatness thrust upon them. And I'm telling you, you're a child of the king, and he wants you to make him known. God's speaking. Let's hear from him and ask him for his blessing. Let me pray. Oh, God, I don't care how old the oldest person in this room is. They're not done yet because the job isn't done. God, I pray that you would rescue especially men from this culture, this lie, this deception, retire early, and then get put out to pasture with all your toys and be distracted for the rest of your life. God, would you please rescue them from the lie of our culture. God, give women a greater longing than just to raise kids, just to be a great mom or grandma, or just to be a a, a great leader in culture. Help us to see the lost. I pray for high schoolers that are here. Who, who are right now what I was, and someone shared the gospel with me. Oh, Jesus, give them courage and boldness. May the young next generation of this church set a pace for us all. And I pray that beyond asking who's your one, we'd say, who's, well, this is one. Here's another one. Here, here's a whole group. Here's a family. Oh, God, may it start with who's your one. Jesus, bless us. Jesus, use us. Oh, we're fearful. God, make a great story of your power in the midst of such weakness. You're longing to do that. Do it for your glory and give us great joy in the midst of it. We pray in your name. Amen.